Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 81 today of uh, In Squash. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and uh, we have Richard Millman on today. And uh, I can remember uh, Richard from way, way back in the early days of uh, the WWW when uh, Squash started to hit the Internet uh, on, uh, I think, er uh, maybe Squash Talk, Ron Beck's uh, great Squash website back in the day. I I can remember there was a Squash Forum on there that's where we used to discuss and uh, discuss everything about the game and Richard uh, was a, a contributor to that he may have even con- uh, contributed to uh, some of the writing there uh, as he does now with uh, Squash uh, the US publication Squash magazine he's got several uh, articles in there and technical uh, sort of coaching aspects of the game and various things but he comes on to the podcast today uh, you know for a while even a while ago, I had it in the back of my mind to reach out to him, but uh, shortly after uh, the Olympic bid, um, he emerged on the internet and uh, in a very different way than many of us, you know, I'm one included who sort of just uh, maybe whined a little bit at the decision. Well, uh, Richard came out and uh, basically just uh, hit the ground running and started offering up solutions. Uh, in the form of uh, videos on, uh, you know, ways to spread the good word and what we need to do uh, aside from, uh, as we talk about on the podcast, aside from uh, ticking the boxes that we expect uh, the IOC uh, bidding uh, committees uh, that that we expect them, uh, what they expect from us, uh, we have to uh, go out there and do what we think is right to promote our game. We know best, and Richard definitely does, so... Yeah, his response to the uh, Olympic bid snub uh, caught my attention and uh, planted again that seed to reach out to him, and he came on. We had a great chat about that. Uh, we also look at his uh, backstory, his squash story, uh, which uh, has it starts in the, in the UK, and then he came over to the US and began to uh, spread the good word over here. And uh, you can, you'll hear on the podcast how uh, how his. Uh, career as a squash coach and uh, you know owner of squash clubs and whatnot has uh, has evolved over the years since back in those early days and uh, alongside that we also talk about this new launch of the world master squash series which uh, obviously uh, given the name is going global in a big way I'm really interested in that as a uh, you know master's uh, age squash player and someone who plays competitively and there are many of you out there who who do as well, because uh, you know, uh, with given the uh, the world the uh, excitement with the uh, World Masters uh, Championships last year in West Virginia and how well run that was. Well, Richard was uh, a big part of uh, of that. He was involved in that in a big way as well, and that sort of uh, spawned, uh, I think, the successes of that and previous Masters Series events spawn this world master squash series which uh, we talk at length about so i know you're going to enjoy uh this podcast with richard millman episode 81 well uh this is episode uh, 81 of the uh the squash podcast and i'm delighted to have on uh an, a guy with an eclectic uh, squash background he's a squash professional uh squash coach contributor to uh, squash player magazine um He's also got several uh, outside the box, I guess you could say, initiatives in terms of how to uh, develop uh, and how to how to broaden the scope of the game, and also uh, involved in the recent launch of the World Masters Squash uh, Series, which was just launched uh, 
last month, late, uh, late in late March. Richard Milliman's my guest. Richard, great to have you on. Jerry, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. Uh, now, Richard, um, first of all, it's great chatting with you today. As I, uh, as we just talked about briefly, I got sort of familiar with with your name in the squash community. I guess uh, back in the early '90s or late '90s with Ron Beck's uh, Squash Talk website, and uh, I think we. I think I remember your name from the squash board and squash community there. So I guess uh, according to your bio right now, you're in South Carolina. Uh, no, right? I've moved on. I've okay. been here okay. in Tennessee, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for the last two years at a wonderful club owned by Mike and Taylor Monan, uh, a couple who have been very successful in the restaurateur world, but also have been prime movers and shakers in trying to move the uh, boundaries of squash in the United States uh, further and further south and west. Right. So I guess, I guess you, I mean, you were in South Carolina previous to that. You started, I believe, in New York City, if I'm, maybe, maybe not, but a few years back, uh, you were there in, uh, uh, in the capacity of maybe a squash uh, coach or squash uh, club owner in New York City as well, weren't you? That, that is true. I, I do completely sympathize with you. It is difficult to keep up with me. I am a squash gypsy. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I, uh, I arrived in the United States um, after the downturn in the economy in the UK uh, in March of 1993. Um, and uh, I found a position at a, a nice club in um, Southern California, um, where um, Tracy Austin grew up playing tennis, and it was a okay. 7,000 member club, but it had 31 squash members. They just sort of discovered Ooh. softball squash, and we built that up to 90 members. And then uh, I fell in with a, an amazing person by the name of Mark Talbot. Um, right. You're North American. We all know Mark Talbot. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And uh, he sort of decided that he would become my agent, which is a pretty good agent. <laughs> um, okay. And my daughter, my stepdaughter at the time was one of the best uh, squash players of her age in the world. She was 16, uh, turning 17 years old. And he had never seen uh, a young lady hit the ball like she hit it and invited us to uh, come to his academy in Rhode Island. And then when I was looking for other positions, he started putting my name forward. And in fact, I then moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, the parent company of the club there, uh, unfortunately, um, didn't have a good business nationwide. And so that sort of fell through a little bit. And then Mark Talbot recommended me to the um, athletic director at Cornell University, where my wife and I went and uh, had an amazing experience as head uh, of men's and women's squash at Cornell University. Oh, great. Before okay. I went down to New York and opened a club, uh, as you rightly said. That was in, uh, was it Westchester? Um, That's right, just right. outside New York City. Okay, so my memory isn't that that bad, even at this age. Uh, that's all. That's all from from memory of the 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 old Ron Beck uh, squash talk uh, days back back in the mid nineties. Yeah. yeah, Ron Beck was uh, another one uh, of the 
various um, sort of passionate people about the sport like yourself and myself. And I had the, the great privilege and pleasure of coaching both of his very, very um, good uh, sons mm -hmm. um, on summer camps. And he, Ron used to send his boys down to me at Westchester to work on their games. Right on. Now, now I know you've got a, a summer camp coming up uh, soon, so maybe we can we can talk a little bit about that uh, later on. But I, you know, I'd always uh, thought of reaching out to you. Uh, but uh, what sort of planted the the this seed to get to reach out to you now? Uh, the posts that you uh, that you came up with in the aftermath of uh, the latest Olympic bid uh, snub. So, um, firstly, before we jump into the specifics of moving forward. Uh, there, what are your your thoughts on on the the latest uh, uh, snub in the Olympic uh, bid? Well, I, I have a mixture of thoughts. Um, first of all, as you will be aware, Jerry, um, for us here in the outside world to really have an understanding of the complexities of the politics and the dynamics of entry into the Olympics is almost impossible. Yeah. Um, we all remember the um, FIFA crisis and, and, you know, the bribery and corruption of FIFA. And I'm reliably informed that as compared with what went on with FIFA, um, you know, well, or put it the other way around, that, that FIFA compared to the Olympic situation, FIFA were amateurs. They really didn't really know how to do the bribery and corruption. That's the sort of scuttlebutt. But, you know, for whatever the situation truly is, very few people have had access to a genuine understanding of uh, Olympic politics. And I've got a good friend uh, who you may be aware of, um, writes in the back of the American Squash magazine, Will Carlin. Yeah. Um, and he is unique in that he is the only uh, American squash player uh, to ever be elected by the entire Olympic athlete group as the uh, US representative to the uh, International Olympic Committee. Mm -hmm. And he was the player advocate and so he got very familiar with how things work. And so we see a great deal of conversation about what we ought to do and what we oughtn't to do. And frankly, um, I think all of our impassioned hopes and aspirations and attempts um, are really, um, unfortunately, so much um, wasted effort. Uh, because it's far beyond the simplicity of logic and what ought to be. Um, and so my view is we have an opportunity to really put our own house in order and to expand this wonderful sport and get to the point where people like the Olympic Committee want us rather than us knocking on their door. And frankly, we just haven't, as a group yet, done a good enough job in um, magnifying this sport, making it available to all comers. Mm -hmm. There are some countries, like, for instance, the UK in the late 80s, 
that had a good cross section of the um, sort of demographic uh, financial public um, playing, but very, very few countries have ever achieved that. And certainly here in the United States, I'm very excited about the efforts US squash are making, and in particular, a lady called Kim Clearkin, who really gets the whole concept of growing squash. And she's doing everything she can with the help of our president, Kevin Clipstein, right. to try and bring the sport to the masses, to mainstream uh, United States, not just the top 2% or the bottom you know, very few people that are lucky enough to be involved in these uh, urban programs. Well, they, uh, I had Tessney Evans on, and I think uh, what you alluded to there just a few seconds ago, the fact that uh, we need to sort of get our house in order and make the game uh, something that the Olympics would want to have in it, not us trying to go out there and just sell it to them and it just keep failing at every effort. That, that was her take. I, I think she was obviously like a lot of the players that could be there in the Olympics now, very frustrated with this uh, whole scenario. And, and her take was just uh, let's forget about it and just play, keep, keep growing our game at our own, you know, the way we're doing it. And then the Olympics will want to uh, come to us rather than us uh, begging them kind of thing. Possibly. Um, but even uh, that, that's out of frustration though. I mean, I don't think she, she actually, uh, uh, believes that but you know I think a lot of the players probably think that way especially the ones who you know have a real you know who would be in the Olympics if if it were you know if if the bid had been successful right I mean my heart goes out to those uh, athletes who put you know countless hours of of training in and, and in fact years of their lives mm-hmm. um, you know I'm sure you remember um, the great uh, Russian gymnast Olga Corbett, who put in years and years into becoming uh, an Olympic athlete and then got an injury um, when she got to her first Olympics and then had to put another four years in to be able to stay in the team to get back. And she was very successful in the end. But if you can imagine the years and years that our athletes put in and don't even have the option of having a failure because they're not invited to the party. Right, uh, but my, my view is that you know squash has got a lot of work to do to get to the point where we're powerful enough to stand on our own two feet, and I think we have tended to look at the Olympics as a foot up the ladder um, without really doing the work that needs to be done, and I, I suspect the work that needs to be done is a multi-generational effort, you know, maybe 20 to 30 years of effort. And that only if we, you know, develop and grow up uh, and evolve our understanding of how to uh, develop the business of squash. Right. And frankly, you know, you've been around for a long time, so have I. Squash was very lucky in the late 70s and 80s because people who had come out of the post-war generation and discovered for the first time that leisure was an option fell upon squash it was 45 minutes of great workout um you didn't have to you know have your ankles kicked from under you like the soccer players um 
injury was less, there was a beer to be had, it was social, and there were no other rival options. Mm -hmm. So you may remember that in, I think, 1984 in Great Britain, 17.5% of the able-bodied population of Great Britain played squash regularly. That's a fantastic number. That was 3.84 million people were playing squash. But of course, at that time, there was no step aerobics. There was no windsurfing. You know, people didn't really understand what all the other leisure options were. And so the governing bodies had this amazing glut of business. And it was hard pressed for them to even administrate the demand. And nobody during that time ever put any thought into what do we do if this demand goes away? How do we create new business? What is the business development method? And so what's happened as the glut has gone away and competition has got great is that we've been left with administrative bodies who know how to service existing need. They have no idea how to create need yeah. and they have no personnel in those governing bodies whose expertise is going out and finding new business. And indeed, we're still focusing on certifying coaches. And what do coaches do? They teach people who tell them that they want to be taught. They don't go out into the world and say, hey, this is a great business. This is a great sport. You would really enjoy it. Let me tell you something about it. And in fact, squash coaches are not well qualified for doing that. They're not really people who go out to do cold sales. They're yeah. people that are waiting for people to come to them. Well, I think a good example of where that may have, you know, the exception to the rule to that might be, maybe you've, you've, you've heard the story of Nick Taylor. Uh, forget where it was exactly where he went, but the, the squash community there was quite small. There weren't many juniors playing. And he went out to all the schools in this uh, island, I forget the name, but uh, he went there and suddenly just it just grew into something that had you know never never seen the the numbers like that before in that area. It was just him, like you said, cold calling all these schools and generating a sort of a, a junior program at every school in the area. And I think it's maybe something like that. And also, it just seemed to get back to that other point you were making as well in terms of squash. Uh, just being re just sort of reacting to what what the uh, the olympic uh, i guess bid committees or whatever uh expect from us so we're just sort of ticking boxes rather than going and trying to develop the game in our own way i agree um you know nick taylor went to the island of jersey and that's that's it yeah jersey sorry yeah. that's right um then there's a man um who has learned how to do the business of squash in the north uh, northeast of uh, England, a guy called Mick Todd, and his son Sam Todd is a very exciting prospect, probably yeah. going to be next great uh, English prospect. But what Mick learned how to do is program development. And this is something that you know I've been harping on about for a long time, is that the skills of program development, which require going out into the community part of the time and being at the club part of the time, mm. uh, are certifiable skills. What you do is you go out, you find novices, you bring them to a facility, or indeed you 
play with them in the streets. And you know, yeah. we haven't really yet explored fully the concept of one wall, wall squash. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but for many years, the sports handball and racquetball really did do a lot of one wall work outside in playgrounds, um, in you know, <clears throat> parks and streets. Well, that, that's a video that uh, one of the videos that you you put up shortly after the the Olympic bid snub. I don't know if you'd recorded it in response to that or or not, but uh, I was going to get to that later. Uh, yeah. But it's it's been a sort of an ongoing um, passion of mine because um, teaching young people who are coming out of in in the UK. Um, sort of sports colleges when they're 18, 19 years old, or even in the US where they're coming out of, you know, a bachelor degree programs with a specialization in sports management or sports business. There's a lot of bright eyed young people who want to spend their life in sport, but don't really know what the career pathways are. And likewise, we have not been good in squash at developing career pathways for people who are not pure squash coaches, but who have wonderful skills in developing sport if they were only certified and taught those skills. And so what we need, I believe, worldwide, and I really hope that World Squash begins to get onto this and get out of the traditional British mode uh, of you know, coach certification and general administration, but into business development, we need to certify sports program directors and sports program direction assistants. And these are people that have basic level coaching so that they can go and get people you know, up to a certain basic level and then bring them to the clubs. But when they get into the clubs, Instead of them turning into ghosts when the club pro just doesn't have time or interest in them because they don't want a private lesson every week and they're not playing in all of the leagues, this is an individual who, when you walk in the door on a Tuesday afternoon at five o'clock, is there to say, hey, Jerry, great to see you. You know, I've got this new guy coming to town. I really want you to introduce him to the club and you know, get him a few games. Or, hey, Jerry, I've got a round robin I'm running. Uh, it's free. You know, I want you to come and play. And it's the people that have the ability to be program directors, not squash coaches, who can work along with the squash coaches, feed them new business. The people that want to learn the skills and spend money on learning the, the skills of the game, you know, they will offer them the opportunity but it's just the general diet of squash within the club that you need somebody to propagate and continue so that we don't have people looking at their credit card bills at the end of the month and going, well, you know what? I didn't really do much at the club this month. Uh, nobody really cared whether I walked in or not. And I've got other things I can spend my money on. And that's how we've lost, certainly everywhere I know where competitive squash has been, leagues are down by something like 70 to 75 percent because we no longer have demand and we don't have any personnel whipping up demand by getting interest well i know at the at the where i play golf anyways uh we have a club pro we have a manager and we have an events and program 
coordinator guy who has nothing to do, knows, well, he plays a bit of golf, but nothing, uh, he's not a pro or anything like that. And, and, and he does a great job in doing exactly what you said like this. And the community is really, really actively the taking part in every event and he's out he's out there promoting everything like that i I guess that's kind of what you're getting at maybe a little bit there isn't it something though um that i think maybe like national national federal like squash england for example could perhaps employ a couple of people to sort of jump start something like that at the clubs in different regions throughout a country Absolutely. And that's what we're hoping to do in U.S. squash. And I know my friend Steve Wren, who's the president of Canadian squash, or Squash Canada, he he wants to do that. And we're beginning to move forwards, I think, with our understanding that an events coordinator, but more importantly, a day-to-day program coordinator, Mm -hmm. these are really valuable people. They've got hearts of gold. They've got social skills, which are slightly different um, to a squash coach. You know, squash coaches generally have decent uh, emotional IQs, but they're not naturally people who go out and talk to strangers. They're much more interested in developing skills with somebody who has come to them who wants to learn. And those skills of your golf events coordinator, they are certifiable skills, and we need to teach young people at the entry level of the career pathway, those skills, give them certification, start internship programs. Once we've got some of them up and running and and skilled, we can have them do training programs and we need to get them into every region and every district working both publicly and privately with national governing bodies and with local associations and with private entities and start generating enthusiasm and we don't need expensive squash courts to do this it's lovely to play at a beautiful facility we all love to do that but an events coordinator a program director in any city or region can start you know prep school kids primary school kids elementary school kids you know 10 kids at a time hitting against walls you know maybe five days a week you've got a different group and then once a month you bring them to the pro courts at a local facility maybe on a Saturday afternoon when the members aren't using it and you have a jamboree where all these kids that have been playing one wall squash get to play on the pro courts and then they go home and they practice again and you can do this on the scholastic system of sort of 10 weeks of a school term and keep bringing in new groups but you need personnel to do that. Internship is a great way to do it. And you need leadership in all the national governing bodies to do that. Yeah, uh, I know at the club uh, that I was referring to earlier, uh, the the current events court, well, there are two guys there now, and they have one guy who's like straight out of college. And I'm thinking what the naysayers in the squash community might say is that it's cost. I mean, that, that's another person you have to pay. Uh, put on the payroll and squash uh, clubs are just surviving but just barely surviving a lot of them but uh, if you were to you know sort of tap into the like you said the younger guys or younger girls uh, coming out of university with that uh, with that degree in sports marketing or what have you uh, then then you've got an opportunity to really not only do you have a young person but someone who might be very very passionate uh, about it right from the get-go and uh, think it, it could be 
something good for squash if we were to tap into that. Yeah, when it comes to funding those things, if you're creative, first of all, you start off with an internship program. Now, some people don't pay interns. I, I've had five interns here in Tennessee from the local uh, college over the last two years. I pay them $100 a week, which they absolutely love. Uh, they learn all kinds of very transferable skills that they can take with them on any career pathway. I make them write a portfolio of their experiences. And what we do is we make sure that they are involved in generating business. And you can generate business, of course, it's culturally different in different countries. But for instance, in the US and Canada, if you are struggling as a squash club, you know, usually it's because you haven't got enough members, you haven't got enough members because you don't have enough activity and so people don't feel value added mm -hmm. so if you have the intern work both on increasing membership and increasing activity keep the activity costs low but a percentage of increase in revenue goes then to pay you know the the young intern mm -hmm. if that person becomes successful you know hand in glove with the growth of the program you can increase their income and as you know, people just coming out of college, usually uh, if they're interested in sport, they have a passion for what they do. They're not usually as financially oriented as somebody who's going to go into you know, financial services or you know, big business. And they're delighted to have the opportunity to work with wonderful sports people. And, you know, an income, depending on the country you're in, uh, you know, in, the, in the UK, something in the region of 10 to 12,000 pounds a year in the US, something in the region of 12 to $15,000 a year. This is not, you know, hugely expensive when you consider what can be produced by generating more activity, more added value, more people being drawn off the streets by doing outreach programs. Mm -hmm. And is this, uh, I know Kevin Clipstein, uh, he's, He's been very uh, proactive over the last uh, since he's taken on the role of uh, I guess, is he with the CEO of uh, U.S. Squash, um, the executive director and you know, CEO and and president. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's been been great in that regard, and the proof is in the pudding. I mean, you, uh, the game is really growing in the U.S. Is this something that's already in place within the, the U.S. Uh, squash organization at the moment? Yeah, there's some interesting stuff happening. Um, in fact, I was talking today with Adam Hamill, who is the um, uh, director of, um, it, I think it's um, development or, or um, I can't remember his name off the top, but he, he's the person that's responsible for developing new uh, employees, new skills um, at U.S. Squash, and he okay. is involved with three different programs at the moment, Portland Community Squash, um, Sean Moxham, who used to coach David Palmer, has a yeah. lovely new club in uh, Porchester, New York. He's got all and the, the interactive uh, squash uh, stuff set up there. <laughs> yeah, he does, but, yeah. you know, as you're probably aware, Sean is a very uh, free thinking, mm. forward thinking squash coach. Um, 
and you know he's obviously involved with an internship program with U.S. Squash and also an old traditional club uh, in Philadelphia, which I was delighted to hear about, Marion Cricket Club, and they've also got involved in an internship program. So I would say that you know under Kevin's direction and along with him, particularly um, Kim Clearkin and uh, Adam Hamill are understanding that it's no good celebrating where we are. That's what happened in England. Everybody was celebrating where they were. And, you know, you, you used to have to get you know, on a waiting list to get in the squash club. There aren't any waiting lists anymore. Right. Um, and so I'm really pleased that U.S. squash is beginning to think outside the box. And frankly, you know, I, I'm not trying to denigrate the Olympic Committee. It's a fantastic organization. Hmm. But we realize, I think, in the U.S. at the moment that we've got to get busy with the nitty-gritty and nuts and bolts of everyday development mm. and not kind of hold our hands out for, for a golden goose. Yeah. You know, we've got to make our own golden geese. Yeah, it just seems to me like, uh, I mean, it's easy, you know, hindsight with hindsight, but, um, you know, we've been just ticking boxes that sort of we think need to be ticked rather than, as you said, you know, thinking beyond that and just doing what we need to do to grow the game. Yeah. Um, there are quite a few people though, who've been sort of maybe in the dark a little bit, but talking about this stuff, I, I mentioned Mick Todd. Um, certainly now Nick Taylor has moved to the U S and there's this young man um, who some future podcast, I would really recommend that you get hold of him, Chessin Gertler, who is the man who's employed uh, Nick Taylor. He was a very good junior squash player, but he's another person that completely is a disruptor. He doesn't want squash to continue just in its traditional method. Um, he doesn't want to denigrate the, those people that have done so much for the sport you know, traditionally, but he wants to grow it and, and, you know, look out for new horizons. And he and I have had some great conversations recently. And he's another person interested in sort of literally let's have a day where everybody in the world of squash takes a few rackets, goes outside with some, you know, bouncier balls and finds anybody in the street and play squash against any wall. Let's get away from the point where when you walk down the street, with your squash rackets, somebody says to you, are you going to play tennis or is that a badminton racket? Or let's get to the point where at least one or two days a year, we'd go outside the clubs and, you know, hit against those hard walls that every tennis court has for yeah. tennis ball against, or go into the malls that have all got walls and central kind of uh, areas where you can take a rebound net and hit the ball against the wall. Well, I was hitting a uh, hitting a ball in my office today. So uh, up uh, next to my desk, I, I got this little bouncy yellow what a stress get rid of stress balls, and I had my squash racket. Just started hitting the ball around, and then a few students came by, and yeah, they wanted to hit it. I mean, that's exactly uh, exactly what we need. Something like that. Brilliant. It's contagious, right? It is, and you'd be amazed. You know, I don't know if you saw the video 
I, well, I, I, I want that. Can, can I just lead into the next question? Because you, you sure. broached it here. Uh, in one of your videos uh, recently, you found a wall in a quiet, I don't know, quiet place and started practicing. Something I used to do when I played lacrosse, uh, just threw the ball up against the wall and, and uh, you know, we practiced and developed our skills anywhere, right? So obviously this meant, uh, you know, you, you wanted to demonstrate that you can hit a squash ball in any location, anywhere. Just put your kid in your bag, in your car, and uh, go off and do that. Is that kind of what you were getting at with this, uh, with that video, or a couple of videos that you posted recently? Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, we can actually play games. You know, mm -hmm. you find any wall, measure out a space that is proportional to the um, surface area of a squash court floor. You know, even if it's a smaller area just make it proportional you know stick some decorators tape up 17 or 19 inches from the floor put a service line with the decorators tape you know six and a half or seven feet up uh, and you play one wall squash just like you would play on a tennis court except you know the tennis lines are in where our lines are out mm -hmm. and i've played with my assistant pros and it's really fun, you know, you serve yeah. above the line, you put some service boxes down, you have to serve into, you know, a return court, and you play drop shots and lengths. Yeah, there aren't boasts, but as a start... <laughs> yeah, if you try to, just imagine trying to boast. <laughs> that's right. Well, the guy that's holding yeah. his beer might get into trouble watching by the sideline. Yeah, yeah. But no, literally, you can play one wall squash, which is a fun game, yeah. and a great lead-in to full court squash anywhere. Yeah, That's, that should be the, uh, one of your next videos, just, just sort of setting how to, how to set up the court, and then yes. maybe, maybe uh, go into sort of a tweaking of the rules for that game. Yeah, no, I will definitely publish that, and I'll let uh, you know. May, or I, I might do that myself. We, we can compare notes. Great. Love to do it. Yeah, yeah, great stuff, great stuff. Now, um, uh, so I guess that that was one of your sort of uh, in, in the in the aftermath of, of the uh, the Olympic snub. There was something else I think that came shortly after that as well, but my it escapes me right now. You posted another video. Uh, do you remember? Well, I, I did the one wall squash yeah. videos and I, I posted a video where I was in the middle of a restaurant and I walked outside then to play squash in a marketplace right, 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 right. It. but the other thing that I'm really really excited about and and I've had the privilege of being invited to get involved with is squash commentary mm. and mm. You know, recently uh, myself and my partner in crime Chanel Erasmus who's uh, my co-commentator, have uh, commentated for U.S. squash at the U.S. Junior Open, which was a fantastic event uh, up in, um, uh, where was that? Uh, yeah, up in uh, New England at um, um, Episcopal, uh, no, Episcopal, um, to Exeter Academy, that's right. And various other great schools up there. Um, and then we did the US Junior Closed at Charlottesville. And then I've just done the US National Championships, the Professional Championships, and the Masters 
uh, in Washington, D.C. at the fantastic new club, Squash on Fire. Ooh, wow. We're trying to establish a very different uh, approach to commentary. I, I wouldn't want to try and compete with PJ and uh, Joey because they are extremely proficient at what they do mm-hmm. and they really have um, cornered the market, as it were, with um, people who have been involved in the elite level of the game for a long time. Yeah. Uh, they have so much knowledge and so much um, sort of uh, understanding of the backstories there. Mm. What I'm trying to do along with Chanel and what US Squash has asked me to do and seems to be very excited about is trying to do commentary as if to students or people perhaps that haven't even played the game before. Mm. And one of my interns, a wonderful young lady called Erica, um, she filmed me. Um, really what she did was listen to one of my commentaries and I asked her to write down every word or concept that she didn't understand, of which, of course, as a non-squash player, there were many. Right. And then we did this video of me explaining every one of those words and concepts mm. so that people watching the commentary would actually understand what on earth I meant when I'm talking about a fade or a pop-out or w- what we talk about when the referees are making decisions. Because yeah. as you'll understand, for the non-squash player or the squash player with limited experience or even you know, some diligent students, a lot of the language used in commentary is just, it's almost like Chinese or Greek yeah. To, yeah. to an English speaker. <clears throat> no, absolutely, yeah. And, and is that something um, you'd be sort of ca- you'd be catering to, I guess, new uh, newer people to the game, obviously. Well, Jerry, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to have everybody that watches the game at all levels over a period of maybe two or three years by watching, if you like, this um, series of videos which are a glossary of terms in the game and a demonstration of what is done in the game to get to the point where they gradually, you know, little by little, veneer by veneer, build up their viewing expertise Mm. and understand the language of commentary. So much so that, you know, if they watch... This isn't necessarily about the live commentary uh, of a match per se. It's more about building a... uh, a, a library of uh, knowledge so that when they watch the live commentary mm. and somebody says wow that was an amazing short arm flick that that isn't complete mystery to them what's being talked about yeah. but they can actually say wow that was a great short arm flick or oh he should have used height there why didn't he slow the ball down or did you see that top spin drop shot that was amazing I want the viewing public to become Joe Squash so that they can actually have an opinion about what the players should or shouldn't have done, what they need to do to improve. The same as when we watch the Masters Golf this week, people who are, you know, amateur golfers are going to be saying, oh, what a mistake, or that was a great shot, or, oh, can you understand how difficult that is to do? Because we're at the point right now 
where one, they don't understand what is being done. Two, they don't understand the descriptions of what is being done. Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a great initiative. Um, would that be something that um, you, you, you're just, you're going to be doing yourself or will you be uh, looking for other contributors in terms of commentary? Well, I'm very lucky that U.S. Squash, and again, I, I mentioned this name, uh, Kim Clearkin, who you will hear time and time again, because she's a visionary. Mm -hmm. um, they have really encouraged me and empowered me to work with Chanel Erasmus, who really wants to do this as a career. And we've got a great guy called Steve Lowe, who's, you know, a professional uh, technology guy and production and direction guy who's got involved with U.S. Squash, you know, uh, and there's another guy at U.S. Squash called uh, Graham Bassett who's in, involved with PSA and also technology. And they're really excited about really expanding the boundaries, doing different stuff, mm. producing content um, that's intelligible, not just to the squash viewing public, but maybe, you know, who knows, you know, Tennis Channel or ESPN. Um, and so... It's, it's kind of a embryonic crucible at the moment. Um, we're hoping to have some meetings this summer where we simply brainstorm. And the great thing about Kim Clearkin is she's a person that doesn't say, oh, we can't do that. She's a person that says, well, let's try it. If yeah. it doesn't work, we'll learn from it. Let's try something else. Yeah. And so I'm that sort of person as well. And I'm very excited about developing the TV production and the content of the video work that we do, not just for live streaming, but also for education. And uh, I don't see any limits. I think US Squash over the next five to 10 years is going to produce a vast library of content, which I think will be saleable to those organizing governing bodies that don't have access to those facilities and will also be you know an asset to us squash one of the things i'm sure you're aware as people have been asked to join squash associations around the world they always ask well what will i get if i join well as we develop our library of content that's one of the things a member will be able to access live on you know on screen uh, commentary but also a, a library of information and explanation. Well, it's great to see U.S. squash pushing the envelope like this. And I think it's, uh, you know, I think worldwide, globally in the squash community, everyone's talking about uh, the initiatives of uh, U.S. squash. So uh, I think you're, you're leading the way in that regard right now. And I think also, Joe, there's, there's some people who are also really understanding that there's an opportunity and joining with us squash you know i, I mentioned steve wren in, in squash yep. canada he's very very forward thinking mm -hmm. um you know he's the very he he's a he's a player he's a he's very passionate about the game and so he's definitely going to jump on board uh, with something like that if he sees the the benefits and obviously uh they're right there in front of him yeah absolutely yeah. and world squash you know has now um, contracted with U.S. Squash to take on the club locker uh, technology 
And um, I should mention also there's a guy in Australia who's an awesome human being, Gary Irwin, who has single-handedly collated all the results of Masters Squash for the last maybe five or six years from every competition around the world. And we're getting to the point where we may well have a world masters ranking computer-based instead of this business where you may know I was the chairman of the seeding panel for the last world masters. And it is absolutely a nightmare trying to work out who should be seeded where when you've got sporadic results, wonderful players who haven't played for a while, you know, it's almost impossible. So the technology, um, the idea of growing the game, adding value, going out and building business and not just waiting for people to knock on your door of your squash club or your squash community. All of these things, I think, are ideas whose time has come. And there are some disruptors, you know, Chess and Gertler, Nick Taylor, Mick Todd, you know, Hadrian Stiff, another interesting yeah. guy. All the outliers. Yeah, exactly. And what's happening is the traditional sort of, this is the way my father used to do it, so it was good enough for him and it's good enough for me. I think that's going away. We don't want to lose the wonderful tradition, but we want to add to it. My, I mean, I, I, had, I was speaking to Hadrian uh, uh, a while ago, and uh, my game improved by 10% just after listening, just after that uh, conversation. <laughs> he, he, he had so many interesting things to say about just sort of the mind and body uh, uh, concept that, that he's that he preaches with his players, obviously the technical side, but uh, that one element of it that kind of went unnoticed, uh, maybe to a lot of us, uh, he really preaches, I think. And uh, to me, anyways, that really, you know, just enjoying the game of squash impacts how well you play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, you've been great with your time, Richard, I, but I, I wanted to get to what you just mentioned uh, a, a second ago there, the World Master Squash. Uh, I'm not sure if it's called the World Master Squash Series or not, but uh, it was launched in March. Uh, and uh, you're, I think, high, highly involved in that. And I think it maybe came on the heels of a few very successful World Masters events, most recently uh, in West Virginia last year, which was uh, hugely successful. So could you uh, get, just give us a bit of a thumbnail on what the World Masters Squash Series, uh, that was just launched, uh, how, uh, what's going on with that, and uh, you know, how you see it playing out? For sure. Um, it's the World Masters Tour. Tour World yeah. Squash has just uh, announced it. Um, yesterday, I was on a conference call with Steve Wren and Kim Clearkin and Tim Wyant, uh, for North American Masters, uh, well, particularly for the U.S. but, but for, uh, and Canada, um, the concept is a world tour series, um, which is encouraging all of the masters around the world to uh, codify how they organise their masters championships, trying to make more uh, of the masters championships open. I don't know if any of your listeners, um, what, sorry, I, I don't know if many of your listeners are aware that both the Canadian Masters, uh, which this year will be the first weekend in May, mm -hmm. and the US Masters, which will be next year, the first weekend in 
April are open tournaments. Anybody from anywhere in the world who's a Masters player can come to this year Toronto and next year Washington DC and play in that event. And so in discussion under the chairmanship of Malcolm Kerr, who's the chairman of the World Hong Kong. Correct. Yeah, I, I've played Malcolm. Uh, we've played several times uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in uh, Korea, and he was in Hong Kong, a very good player. Well, under his chairmanship, we of the World Masters uh, subcommittee, um, which is uh, one of the um, groups that function under um, World Squash, um, have uh, been talking for some time about trying to market and uh, codify World Masters Squash. You know, I mentioned earlier the idea of getting a consistent ranking, but also the idea of travel around the world in recent years has appealed to a lot more retirees. And of course, obviously we want more over 35s and over 40s and over 45s to play Masters Squash. Um, you know, I think sometimes people that have been good players and have retired, you know, don't realize that it's not just the game that they've retired from, but they've retired from the fellowship. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you at the World Masters Championships in Charlottesville, Virginia this summer, um, my friend, former world number one, John White, who did not enter, came in to chat to a lot of his buddies like Brett Martin and Willie Hosey, who did enter. And I saw a very misty look in his eye as he surveyed <laughs> the entire place. And you could see him thinking, what an idiot. Why didn't I enter this? These are my people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Sarah Fitzgerald has been a really powerful force. Um, you know, Jean and Chris Granger, Natalie Granger's parents in South Africa, tremendous force, you know, helping to all this. And it was with uh, Jean and Chris Granger that I developed the concept of the Nations Cup. And the Nations Cup is a team event within the context of the World Masters. And what I did was I created a, a, a competition where there are two cups, actually, the Small Nations Cup for nine uh, or less players and the Nations Cup for teams that have more than nine players. And you get points by getting through to a certain level of the competition. We did it in Johannesburg the first time. It was a great success. The presentation of the Nations Cup was just a celebration of fellowship and camaraderie and team spirit. And this time in Charlottesville, I did the awards and I referred to all of the nations um, in that uh, same uh, collective noun as is used in the Tour de France. I called them the peloton of squash. And as you know, in the Tour de France, all of the teams are fiercely competitive, but they also have an incredible fellowship. And the old guys who have been around for a long time, uh, you know, very good at just gently guiding the young guys who have just joined the peloton as to what is acceptable, and then inviting them in and making them feel welcome once they understand the etiquette of the sport. And we have a peloton 
in World Masters Squash. And what we're trying to do through the World Masters Tour and through the Nations Cup is to proliferate this worldwide fellowship. Com competition, yes, serious competition, something to train for, you know, things to go home every day and, you know, do your sprints or do your solo, but at the same time, a gathering of like-minded individuals throughout their lives, and we hope eventually to get to the point, you know, where people are traveling to the regional masters, the national masters, and the world masters. And so, just to make that clear, there will be national masters, for instance, like the US masters, or the Canadian masters, or the British Open masters, and there will be regional masters, so the Oceanic Masters, or the North American Masters, or the European Masters. And then finally, the doyen of Masters competition, you know, the World Masters, and of course, we mustn't forget the World Masters Games, which happens also every four years, which is the biggest participant. It's the, the Olympic Games for Masters players. Fantastic. <laughs> But very few people know about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's gradually growing in popularity. But again, although we go to the World Masters Games to compete for our nations and individually, we also go there as part of Team Squash. Mm. And in Turin, when we all walked through the streets and the Turinese came out in their literally hundreds of thousands to cheer us as we walked through the streets, we carried a um, placard with the word squash on it and we all had our national uniforms on but we were all together as one sport and so that's really what world masters tour is aiming towards yeah. is fellowship more communication more consistency more reason to keep fighting and training and the opportunity to travel and be with each other and increase the growth of the game. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, Malcolm Kerr there a little bit uh, ago, and uh, I just wanted to ask you about this. Uh, I know one of the, in that region anyways, uh, in Asia, and also I think a lot of participants from, players from the Middle East, the, I think it's the, not the Hong, it might be the Hong Kong Open, I could be mistaken, but there's a, a Hong Kong threes element to one of those tournaments, and it's a, over 45, over 45 three-player team event. And I, th I think, yeah. love team events. Yeah, and, and, and it's, very, uh, it's been going on for several years. You might uh, maybe want to, if you're when you communicate with Malcolm next, ask him about that, maybe sort of something to, to consider as well uh, going forward with, the, with these masters uh, things. The team events are great. Yeah, I'm hoping, yeah, that'd be great. I will definitely do that. Thank you for that. But I'm hoping to also get consistency in the formatting so that, you know, for instance, if we do Nations Cup at the World Masters and then we do a home Nations Cup when you've got, um, you know, the US, Canada, Mexico and the Caribbean playing in the North American Masters, and then a district 
uh, Cup, when you've got a national championships. Now we open our event um, to anybody. So for instance, there's no reason in the US Masters why um, apart from Philadelphia and Massachusetts and Northern California and Seattle and Philadelphia, why Ontario shouldn't send a team to compete in the District Cup. And, you know, there'll be one cup for teams with large numbers of players and one cup for districts that can only muster small numbers of players. But again, turning to the economics of the sport, if we're creative in the way that we offer opportunities to groups, we can actually get more people involved by offering a team entry for multiple players, make it less expensive. And you may, I don't know if you understand or heard this, but what I did with the US team in the World Masters in Virginia is I got more on a big doubles court and I made a map of the US and made them all go and stand in their respective geographic state mm. and then had them all introduce each other to each other. And then for the rest of the tournament, I um, had them support each other and coach each other. I also wrote to all of the people that I had either had as clients or that I knew in the sport and asked them if they would donate towards a big party for all nations. And what happened was we had this amazing party, uh, which I think was closed by the German team singing John Denver's Take Me Home Country Rose at the top <laughs> of their voice. Um, but team spirit became prevalent and people no longer were asking, well, what do I get for my entry fee? Because they were so focused on being part of something bigger than themselves. And so where people have found it very difficult to afford some entry fees and you know the whole price of going to these things, when you offer a team entry fee, it's actually much easier to fundraise for and you can like eight months before the event, you can do a bake sale or you can do an exhibition or a squash marathon to raise money for the team and defray the expense per individual. And people do love coming together. And of course, that's what we want. We want more people involved instead of seeing these numbers decreasing because the load is too great on individuals and people feel like they're not getting they start getting more excited about giving. Right. And the, uh, you met the world squash federation is behind this. Yeah, absolutely. It was an, an initiative pushed through, uh, really, uh, Andrew Shelley, um, you know, who's I've known for too long, 40 years, more than 40 years, probably. Um, he is a, amazing individual he underplays his hand every single time you ever meet him always is modest but he is also equally very powerful in the background he saw this uh, as very important encouraged Malcolm Kerr to uh, with the committee really work on this and it's uh, you know Malcolm Kerr and Andrew Shelley and our committee's brainchild if you like Right. And I guess they've been in touch with all of the, uh, the national federations in terms of what's, uh, uh, what's going on with this initiative. 
Yeah, they have, but of course they can't make it happen. No. And that's why we had our conference call in North America yesterday, because, you know, you need soldiers in the front line. And unless we step up and do something, nothing's going to happen. And we've got to be more creative in the way we approach these things. You know, for the same reason as, you know, the squash went from 3.84 million players in England down to 1.2 or even some by estimates 800,000. You can't just wait for people to come in through your front door. You have to go out, excite them, give them a reason to come and join you. Now, I just have a question with regard to that. Um, I was, let's say, for example, uh, a federation is not as active in that regard as they, they, you know, that we would like them to be. Would it be, is it possible for a group of people to get together and say, okay, we'll, we'll spearhead the movement uh, uh, without, the, with, without the federation getting, getting involved? I would never recommend that because the governing body is the governing body. Yeah. It's directly, um, you know, responsible to world squash. And, you know, for a long time, I was a bad little rebel, Jerry. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time. I'm, I'm not always the brightest star in the firmament. Uh, but you can do a lot more inside than you can outside. You know, agitating by being part of the program and finding how to come up with solutions is always better than being part of a problem. Right. Right. No, I couldn't. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm just thinking, you know, there, there may be some, some organ, some federations, uh, national bodies that uh, may not be as proactive in the, in these things, but uh, I guess you're right. You know, if you want, want to take the initiative, approach them and see, you know, say on their behalf, you'd like to uh, get involved. Right. Get involved with that national federation. Yeah. Be that person that is a disruptor, but within the group and make sure that the group that uh, is responsible for running squash in your area, you know, gets the credit and, and backs what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Egos have got to come out of the thing because Egos are not going to help any of us get what we want in the long term, which is this amazing sport to grow and become part of the mainstream rather than just the select few. Well, uh, Richard, let's let's uh, let's see how this all plays out. But it's starting well. I mean, it, uh, Master Squash uh, over the last few years, especially, it's really uh, really grown into something special. And that's uh, again another element of the game: keeping the, the players that have been playing keeping them in the game, you know? Absolutely. That's what your event coordinator does, doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't he? Absolutely. Well, Richard, uh, it, it's been, uh, been a great hour chatting with you about this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I had a, a hundred other questions here. I wanted to talk to you about technical side of, game, of the game and stuff, but uh, uh, we'll save that for, for the next time, if you wouldn't mind coming back on. It would be my great pleasure. And thank you for what you do. It's so wonderful that somebody has got the passion to proliferate our sport in this way. And uh, it's a pleasure for me to, to be with you. Let's do this. Let's keep up the good fight, Richard, and, and great talking to you. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Well, thanks, Richard, for that. That was really, really good stuff. Uh, you know, Richard's been in the game fighting the good fight for several years. And as you could hear, uh, in our chat, uh, he's been doing 
many, many different things as a coach, as a squash club owner, uh, pushing the envelope, getting it, uh, the squash out there uh, to a broader audience, uh, keeping the game alive for us uh, people who've uh, reached a certain age, and so on and so forth. So uh, thanks, uh, Richard, for all that you do, and let's keep up the good fight. Uh, I'd like to work uh, work towards uh, maybe bringing the, the World Masters uh, Squash Series to the UAE, maybe to the Middle East. Uh, so with our contacts there, uh, we can hopefully broaden the scope of that as well. So looking forward to uh, future uh, conversations with Richard uh, down the road. Now, uh, going on uh, on the Pro Tour in Eindhoven, the return of squash to uh, Holland, we had uh, some great first-round matches on the women's side and men's. Uh, Canadian interest yesterday on the women's side. Danielle Latorno uh, almost uh, pulling off uh, an upset there against Amanda Sobe. It went to four games, should have gone to five, but she played really well. And um, uh, another Canadian, Holly Naughton, pulling off a, a, a very good upset by beating out uh, Emily Whitlock. A great win for her, so it bodes well for Canadian women. Uh, at that highest level, so uh, looking good on that side of things. And on the men's side, some great first-round matches, including uh, James Willstrip and Daryl Selby getting through theirs in five games, and Declan James getting uh, exacting a bit of revenge. Uh, I watched that match a few months ago. forget what event it was, but he lost to Mustafa uh, Assal in three, I think it was three games, and uh, just didn't look like he was imposing his will. Maybe he... You know, the guy was a, just a young junior, so he didn't really, uh, you know, Declan seems like a gentleman on the court, but uh, didn't see the match yesterday, but I can just imagine that he probably uh, knew that and attempted to impose his, uh, his game, uh, his physicality a bit more, and that would have been the turning point because Mustafa's playing extremely well, must be confident after his win in Pakistan recently. So uh, some great squash to look forward to going forward in Eindhoven. Uh, incidentally, I spent a bit of time in Eindhoven over the years and uh, some, some wonderful squash facilities there and in and around uh, Eindhoven. Uh, some it's, and it's a beautiful part uh, of the world as well. So I'm sure the players are enjoying themselves. Now, I uh, just want to say again, thanks to everyone for listening to the podcast. Really appreciate you. Please spread the word if you can amongst your friends uh, with about the podcast. We've got, as you know, 81 episodes now dating back to episode one with Neil Harvey. We've got several great ones on uh, different aspects of the, the squash world. Again, it's a, it's a squash stories type of uh, podcast. So we try to tell the story of squash through the eyes of different people in the game, players, coaches, enthusiasts, management, marketing people, uh, associations, uh, equipment people. So anybody, anything uh, that has a, any connection to the game, I'm, I'm hoping to bring on to the podcast. So if you have any suggestions or if you'd like, uh, if you have a great story you want to tell uh, on the podcast, please uh, let me know. Drop me a, a line on Facebook or uh, on Twitter, or just send me an email at ggibson, G-G-I-B-S-O-N, at hct.ac.ae. And I'd love to hear what your, your thoughts are about that. So anyways, everyone, thanks for listening. Have a great day. Enjoy your squash. Enjoy the Eindhoven uh, uh, squash, the return of squash to, uh, to Holland, the pro game, and uh, have a great day. Goodbye now.